Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Silvatis podcast. Today, I have Dr. Alessia Corrieri joining me today, and we're going to be talking about death and the dying process. And for some, this might be a little difficult to hear, but I think it's such an important conversation to have with people like Alessia to provide us with the right information and the education going forward so that we can learn about this and destigmatize these types of conversations. So thank you so much, Alessia, for joining me today. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely to come and chat to you again. <laughs> And the way we know each other is you're actually my lecturer when I was at university. Yeah, so you had plenty of my like crazy anecdotes and, um, you know, going off course and talking about various things. And I'm sure at some point I did talk about my kind of passion about people having a good death and the importance of DNARs and things like that. Absolutely. And that's why I thought you were the one of the best people to be able to come on to the podcast and talk to us about this. And I have done your introduction injustice because Alessia is a doctor, a medical doctor, and you've been in practice for over six years now. And so you bring that real life experience and not just a theoretical knowledge to it. Yeah. And I, uh, I also did undergraduate neuroscience. And a part of that that I loved was also a kind of an element of philosophy and um, philosophy as a mind, philosophy of life. And I try and bring that forward as well into clinical practice. And it definitely, definitely comes across. I want to jump straight in, Alessia. So what is the death and dying process like? Can you talk us through it? I mean, so obviously um, it's unique to each person, um, but, and as we, we've discussed amongst ourselves as well, it's been very different in the previous few years. Um, but generally, from my experience, sort of working in elderly care and a lot of sort of end of life work, um, it's, it's much less dramatic than I think people fear it's going to be. Um, it's sort of, again, it, it depends what people are dying from, uh, chronic illness or kind of long-term conditions, but often it's it's not completely unexpected. So we can kind of see a gentle deterioration in time, um, whether that's physically or cognitively. Um, and you sort of get start to get a sense of things that they're not really responding to treatments anymore. They're not necessarily getting better or it's not in their best interest to really kind of keep pushing um so generally people um you know just become less communicative um they might sort of seem much drowsier and sleepier during the day um and it's usually at that point that um a palliative care team an end-of-life team are, are brought in um, to have a discussion with the family um and make sure that everything's being done that's good for the patient and in keeping with their wishes um, so this might be a point where we, we give them sort of end of life drugs and those are all designed just to make someone feel, you know, not make sure they're not having any pain, any breathlessness, any kind of anxiety that can sometimes happen as we get breathless and things like that. Um, but also, as I said, we always kind of, it's an individualized process. So if, <clears throat> for example, they have religious beliefs that they should be clear of mind, we'll take that into consideration and work around that and not give them anything that would make them too kind of too drowsy yeah and, and then um often again pre-pandemic 
um, we we kind of let the family know that things might be coming towards the end. We would invite them in, encourage them to you know spend time with the patient as much as possible, um, if if they so wish. And and often it's just quite a quiet kind of peaceful thing where the breathing just gets a little bit less so. And then yeah, you know one of the nurses will just kind of check in and confirm that you know they've passed. Um, but it's just, as I said, a lot quieter, a lot less dramatic than I think most people are concerned that it's going to be. Yeah. And I wonder physiologically, how does our body prepare ourselves for death? Like, does it start slowing down? Does it start sort of responding differently? Yeah. I mean, again, I suppose it's, it's, kind of different for everyone and we'll never they always say kind of say hearing's probably the last thing to go so even though someone might not have their eyes open they might still be sort of listening to their loved ones around them um but certainly you start to see that the respiratory rate slows right down um that they're taking less regular breaths um they definitely become much less responsive and then they just kind of slowly slowly drift as I said, each this is a kind of prepared for death. Obviously, there are acute illnesses and things um, like heart attacks, but within a hospital setting, it's usually quite expected. Yeah, and you mentioned the palliative care team will often come in and sort of, um, you know, give a lot of guidance and input. And that was certainly the case in in my experience. The palliative care team were so amazing, and one of the things that they often did was trying to sort of prepare us for the next stage or what they thought was coming next. And at the time it felt really overwhelming because as a non-medical sort of person, well, osteopathy counts, right? I don't know. <laughs> but one would hope that people aren't dying in your <laughs> osteopathy clinic. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, I don't have to encounter that in, in my professional <laughs> life. But one of the things that they were good at was just preparing me for sort of the next stage. But at the time, I remember it was just so overwhelming because you know you're emotionally entangled in this sort of in this grieving process that hasn't even actualized yet and you're trying to take on all this medical information and try to prepare for what's next and then try to explain that to other family members so that they're prepared and you obviously don't do it quite as much as much justice because there's things that you leave out or things that you don't understand um but that's one of the sort of formative things that were, was really helpful in my experience was that palliative care team and how amazing they really were. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. That obviously, the palliative care team is there very much to ensure that the patient is comfortable and not suffering in any way. But the death process is, isn't just that individual. It is the whole family. And again, I think it's interesting that you say it was just completely overwhelming and it was all this jargon. I think it's really easy as a clinician using words and terms that you say all the time, you forget that not everyone deals with this stuff. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's really important to just almost quite bluntly say to people, you know, they're not going to get better because if that's misunderstood in some way, then it's become, going to be a much more jarring shock when, when that family member passes away. So it's also just about you know, really clearly explaining what's going to happen um and again in if we're in a society where death is kind of this taboo that we don't talk about there might be 
the, the inclination to kind of use euphemisms and things about, you know, moving on or this and the other. And actually, it's really important that it's really clear what you mean and not that they're going to go to a different ward or something, which sounds ridiculous, but, you know, just really clear, open communication and also giving that family a chance to ask all their questions um, beforehand. And often people will have things like, could we not try something else? Are there not, is there not a different treatment? So I think just really open, honest communication. Um, it's just so important. And the palliative care teams are amazing for that because, you know, they're just sitting in with a palliative care consultant is like watching an art form unfold. They're just so good. It really was. It really is. And I remember the palliative care team doctor that was looking after my mom towards the end was so patient, especially with the questions that we had, and 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 so kind as well. Like, I mean, they see it all day, every day. But for us, it's the only time, hopefully, well, the first time, or maybe sometimes only time that you'll ever encounter something like that. And so for them to you know, not be sort of desensitized to that process of what a family member is going through just is such a testament to, to what they do and to what you do as well, because it's important. Well, again, I think it's, it, it's so true. It's because it's your routine. You always have to stay mindful of the fact that this is like the most emotional, most important thing that's happening in these people's lives right now. Um, so to just be really mindful of that and never treat it like a kind of oh tick go talk to the family um but just be aware that this person who's passing away is their world and so you know to treat it with that respect and to unrushed book a block amount of time you know be ready to hand your bleep to somebody else so that you can have this chat and as i said unfortunately that was something that's was lost slightly during the pandemic i feel yeah. And so how did that whole process for you change pre and during the pandemic? Because I imagine there were so many different protocols in place. There were so many different processes that you couldn't actually do. What was that like as a doctor delivering that care? Really unsatisfactory, I would say. As I said, I was usually quite, um, quite at peace. It was kind of death on the ward. It was often expected, a long-term illness or an elderly patient. And, you know, you could feel that it, obviously it's sad that somebody's passing away, but you can do them justice in the way that you're approaching it. You can make sure all the family have had a chance to say goodbye. You've kind of spent sufficient time with them that they are ready for what's about to happen. Um, and the, the pandemic definitely took that away for multiple reasons. So firstly, people not being allowed in the hospital, um, not being able to be with their loved ones. Um, and that was problematic because people often deteriorated very quickly. So it was very shocking for people. They'd say, she was out walking the dog two days ago and now you're trying to tell me she's passed away. You know, it was just very shocking. They hadn't had time to digest and process that. Um, it was also really difficult from my perspective as well, because, you know, for example, overnight as a junior doctor I was covering the wards, you know, there were two doctors in A&E just firefighting down there and I was covering the wards and multiple people were passing away. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you've got all the medical wards to cover. You would love to sit down to call the 
family in to debrief them to have that time but you're also just really aware that there are people deteriorating everywhere and you do not have that time that you would you would like to have with that family of which this is the most kind of important thing that's happened in their life at that point and you want to show it that amount of respect but actually it's kind of like a really sorry this happened ask the nurse to bleep me if there's any further questions because I've got like you know another 50 people all of whom are deteriorating mm-hmm. so it, it was it was unpleasant as a clinician because you couldn't allocate the time to deal with these things in a sensitive way you were just trying to hold down the fort as best you could. And that suddenly resonated because it was only after I started attending sort of group therapy where I realized how lucky and privileged I was when I was granted access to visit my mom on the ward and how much access we were given because it was from listening to other people and, and, you know, UK-based majoritively, so I can't really say about other places, but, you know, Mm -hmm. they weren't allowed to see their loved ones they were only granted maybe like an hour a day and that had to be the same person and there were all these other rules put in that I couldn't I couldn't believe that that was happening yeah and I think it's definitely going to have to be something we reflect upon and think was that appropriate I mean I know that we're all trying to reduce transmission and the risk and clinical you know, hospitals were a hotspot for that sort of thing because lots of our inpatients were COVID positive. But I also just think it's it's so damaging um, for the experience, for the family. Um, I too have, I mean, I was um, experienced a, a death over the Christmas period and you, we kind of said how lucky it is that the rules have relaxed and we could actually be with her till the end and have that time. And Um, I know for me and my mum, that was really important in terms of processing what was going on and your own kind of stress and anxieties and guilts about them being okay or feeling like they're alone. You you obviously don't want that for someone you love. And so knowing that we did everything that we could to make sure she was comfortable and that we were there and we could hold her hands and say that we loved her. And that was an invaluable moment. Um, And I, yeah, I'm not sure if it was the right thing actually to stop people um you know when people are at that end of life stage or critical stage um because I think for most people that was actually the most stressful part of the experience and it definitely comes across when I speak to other people about you know when they haven't had that access and the guilt associated with that where they you know they weren't with their loved one right until the very end or things like that where Mm. I was I I mean my family me and my brother were so lucky we literally were there 24 hours and when I say 24 hours literally was a rotation of one of us being there and I didn't realize how privileged I was to be able to do that yeah and also, I think there's an element of kind of bravery around it. Um, I know we've discussed before that um, I'm <laughs> not flipping about it, but I, I, as soon as I knew that she was dying, I was like, of course we're going. Like, there's no, no even question. But I do know that family members were sort of like, oh, I'm not sure I want to. Um, and it wasn't because they didn't love her or they wanted to make sure you know they were kind of like okay you're there to make sure she's not alone um and I did go away and reflect on that and think kind of what was that about and then I realized that yes there are lots of people who've never actually experienced death or been confronted with death before and 
what do we base our knowledge on if we've not actually had hands-on experience? And that's films and TV, which, you know, are massively dramatized and make it seem horrific. <laughs> um, rather than actually what is the most natural thing in the world. It is going to happen to every single one of us. So it's best to just, you know, as you said, talk about it more like it, like we're doing now, discuss it, be a little bit more open about it and be a little bit more prepared perhaps um, to kind of enter those moments in life and try and deal with it in a way that's not gonna be like, be less traumatic than it could be. Absolutely, and I almost wish that there was sort of uh, some, some kind of education in process, in, in place rather, so that you can be more prepared because as we said earlier, like it's really overwhelming. It's an avalanche of information. And that's if you have the sort of perspective of having someone in hospital already and maybe, you know, either with a terminal illness or with a condition that they're hospitalized for. We haven't even covered people who, you know, die of a sudden death and how all that process is just completely removed and you don't have any of that. Yeah, and I, I've definitely thought about this. I've um, <laughs> thought of it as a joke, actually, that I realized that I was living with two people who weren't medical. And I used to laugh and say, well, if anything happens to you two, you're fine, because I'm here. But what happens if something happens to me? <laughs> yeah. And I do think that, interestingly, things like um, basic life support should perhaps be part of the curriculum because it's it's often when it's too late and someone collapses in front of you and you don't know how to administer good quality CPR or you know that's a, that kind of guilt could stay with you rather than thinking I did everything I could um, but most people they just haven't even thought about those kind of things or what would happen if because they don't like to think about it because it's still kind of something they want to try and pretend doesn't happen or exist. Yeah, and it's funny that you talk about CPR because I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about how they learned how to do CPR from an episode of The Office, the American version. <laughs> and there's this, an episode where Steve Carell is singing to stay in alive and administering sort of- oh, that, That's CPR. a good up on beats per minute. That and um, Poker Face by Lady Gaga. And that's uh, a new one. controversially, Another One Bites the Dust um, is obviously a great 100 beats per minute. <laughs> I feel like there are some aerobics well, instructors. Stay away from that. Maybe staying alive is a more positive. <laughs> yeah, and keeping with that theme of, you know, we're going to get you through this. But, you know, it's it's amazing how some people aren't educated about that. And, mm. and certainly if I weren't in the medical profession I am in, I probably might not be because I've had to do first aid training free so often because I have to do it as part of my job. Yeah. And it's it's funny that you say that they kind of learned it from the office because... Again, I think most people's experience of what CPR is, is from television, which is woefully inaccurate. In fact, like I'm, I'm that really annoying person that will send out that text message on the WhatsApp group every time I see a medical show where they're do doing CPR with one hand or, or the classic three thumps to the chest and then, oh, I'm alive again. <laughs> it's so unrealistic. Um, and actually that, causes a lot of problems when people are coming to hospital DNARs um, people have such unrealistic expectations that they think that literally you just kind of thump the chest and someone wakes right up again um, and so again it's 
something that I just think should be on the national curriculum because it's so important and it will affect everyone at some point, whether it's making a decision about themselves or discussing decisions about family members, you know, death is natural. It happens to everyone. We need to get talking about this. Um, so a DNAR, I think a lot of people get very confused about what that actually means, a do not resuscitate order. Um, and in reality, all it means is that if someone is so unwell that their heart stops beating for some reason, that we will not attempt to restart it. And so that means that they will get every other type of treatment. They'll get all their antibiotics and their IVs, and they can even be admitted to intensive care. Um, you know, like when they had COVID intensive care to have ventilation and things. It just means that if they deteriorate so much, we think that doing CPR would not be beneficial. And again, sometimes I just wish that people could almost even have a snapshot of seeing us do CPR and seeing how brutal it is. You know, you're gonna get graphic, but you have to push so hard on the chest that you crack ribs, you feel them crack underneath you. Um, there's gonna be tubes down the throat. There's gonna be, you know, lines in arms, legs, stabbing wherever we can get access. And the success rate is very, very low. I mean, the chance of, if someone's that unwell, being able to get circulation back, it's quite low and it goes down the older you are and the more health problems you have. So if you're a yet fit, young, healthy person, there's a good chance. But if you're an 85 year old, the chance of getting them back to any kind of quality of life is, is basically minimum. We're saying we don't want to resuscitate because the chances are is that they will either not actually wake up and be on life support or they will have not had oxygen to the brain long enough that they will be severely impaired and have very low quality of life. And so it's kind of trying to get through to the general public that when we offer DNARs, it's not us saying, oh, we don't care about your, your grandma anymore. We're just gonna let her die. It's like, no, we are gonna bust a gut keeping her alive. But if she gets that unwell, we're then going to switch to making her comfortable rather than her last moments being like really traumatic. Um, switching into getting her into a nice quiet room, into a side room, getting her onto medications that make sure she's not suffering with anything. And it's only because we think that even doing CPR, she would likely die. So let's let's switch routes now and make it a pleasant experience for everyone involved rather than a really traumatic experience. Um, and I just think that that kind of piece of knowledge should be something that everyone is aware of um, because Again, we have lots of people come in and say, I don't want a DNAR because I don't want them to die. And it's like, that's not what that is. Yeah. And I was really lucky because there was one nurse in particular, and, and she'll know who she is if she's ever listening to this or watching <laughs> this, who sat us down and explained all of this in a really calm way and took the time. And we were so lucky that she had that foresight to be able to say, look, this is what a DNAR is. This is what happens if you try and resuscitate this person. And this is what's going to happen after. They're not going to. And in, in our case, you know, my mom wasn't going to recover if we had a DNA, um, if she was resuscitated. And so for us, it was it's really, and obviously it's, it's different for everyone, but it was so hard to hear that this isn't going to bring your loved one back. Yeah. And if anything, it's going to make, it's going to prolong things to a point where they might be in more pain. And more suffering, yeah which none of us want for our loved ones. Exactly. And that's when you there was a switch. It was like, okay, you know what? It's fine. We're going to do everything that we can do. And 
just like you said, just ease or limit the amount of suffering that they're in. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, the chat that's joined me. <laughs> Kat can join the podcast too. <laughs> Um, but again, it, that was the problem as well, is that, as you say, you had someone sit down and explain this to you so that you could get there in your own time and say, actually, this is what I want. But especially with the pandemic, everything was rushed. We were seeing unbelievably large numbers of people in A&E, and we were trying to sort them out as quickly as possible. Um, and so that that one decision that would be, that, oh, there's one person that's come in tonight that might not make it, let's call the family, have that chat. Suddenly it started to be many people who were coming in elderly you know already with really low oxygen levels lots of lung involvement and so again it, it started to be like a kind of faster turnover of communication and that's not the kind of communication that can be done quickly um and that again is when you get those kind of bad experiences for families who feel like maybe their loved one was just kind of dismissed because they were older when obviously they weren't we were trying everything we could um all those kind of miscommunications or feeling that not enough was done and that's the kind of thing that can be overcome with good quality communication which was taken away by the pandemic because we were just so busy and we were just trying to keep people alive and it sort of became lower priorities unfortunately yeah and in keeping with some of those conversations about sort of like what happens when you have a DNA, DNAR in place, can you talk to us about what happens when you have like power of attorney and like the medical aspect to it? Yeah. So, and again, I think this is something that it's so important to talk to your older relatives about before it's too late. So um, people can appoint things like lasting power of attorneys. It can be to do with financial stuff or it can be um, to help make medical decisions. Um, but it's all about getting to a point when that person still has capacity, still is able to make decisions, um, you know, is not incapacitated in any way, like delirious or, you know, not completely awake, um, whatever that might be it's important that they make these decisions beforehand um, because unfortunately another sort of side effect of us being reluctant to talk about death and things at the end is a lack of planning. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you don't want to be doing it all in a rush at the end. It's nice to know, you know, for example, me and my mum chat about this we're not morbid we're just out of curiosity you know I know that my mum would not want to be kept on a life support machine if she was non-communicative communicative or you know she was in that kind of state she would want to have end-of-life care for example and that's really helpful for me because I know <laughs> as the doctor in the family I will probably be her medical lasting power of attorney so I need to know that that's what she would want so that then when I'm having these discussions with the doctors and they say, well, we can try and put her on a ventilator and see, I can say, actually, that's not what my mum would have wanted. Um, she would rather be made comfortable, have us there. Um, and then that way you kind of make sure as well that your loved ones do have things how they want, um, rather than having to have conversations with the doctors and saying, I don't know what they would want. Which makes your job even harder, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, because obviously you just want what's best and what they would want. So it's better to have these conversations and to be aware. Um, you know, and again, me and my, 
makes me sound like I have a morbid family, but we all both don't, like we would, we would want a DNR, sorry, if we were in that state, because both of us have experienced resuscitation scenarios and we've seen what kind of state people can be in afterwards. So we know it's not a magical cure. We know it's not like Baywatch where they just done, done. And then they're like, thank you so much. Let's go for dinner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it just doesn't work like that. And, and so both of us are quite open about the fact that if we got to that point where we were that unwell, we would absolutely not want to be resuscitated. We'd want all the good drugs. We'd want all the morphine and the bedazzlam and everything that the palliative care team are willing to give us. <laughs> yeah. And so I wonder, like, so for example, if somebody didn't have a medical power of attorney in place, that doesn't mean that, what does that mean exactly? Because... <laughs> It's, it doesn't really change things hugely because the doctors are always acting in best interests. So um, the reason why a medical power of attorney can be really helpful is they can, they can say things like they wouldn't have wanted this and it really helps guide um, caring for them in a way that is in their best interests. Um, if somebody doesn't have someone like that, for example, some people don't have family around or you can also get an IMCA, an independent mental health individual who comes and gives a kind of independent view for someone who doesn't have capacity. Um, but in reality, generally, the doctors are working as part of an MDT. We discuss, we continue to act in their best interests. We reach out to family members as much as we can to try and involve them and discuss what they would have wanted, how they would have wanted it. You know, some people say, I know absolutely they wouldn't want to be in hospital, for example, so we can try and fast track to a care home, nursing home. Um, some people say, I know they wouldn't have wanted to go back home, you know, and for their own personal reasons, like they wouldn't want their family members to find them after they've passed, for example, so they want to stay in hospital. So all of these kind of things get taken into consideration with the MDT and we just try and organize things how they would have wanted. And again, we, the palliative care team are very good at taking into consideration pastoral needs as well. So would they like a rabbi or a priest or an imam? What, who would they like to come and see them before the end? And all of these kind of things that it's, it's no longer too medical actually it's about just making that demedicalizing that experience in a way giving them medication so that they're comfortable but actually thinking about them much more as a person rather than a patient yeah and it's interesting that you talked about you know how <clears throat> you and your mum have had those conversations um because of the background that you have um and I remember and you talked about sort of like that glamorization of death, you know, in movies and Hollywood and things like that. And it certainly felt like a completely different experience to what I might have seen, like on Grey's Anatomy or something. But I remember very distinctly watching Eon. This is back in the day, um, you know, and, and I remember watching Eon. It was a lunchtime and having my mum near next to me and talking and it spurred on some of that type of conversation and from even from that back then I had an idea of what my mum would have liked at the end not to the T because we didn't really expand on it but I had an idea and I'm, I was pretty happy with how you know that translated to how she was treated at the end yeah yeah I, I suppose the only way to change that is to take away this kind of fear of talking about death and 
I, again, I sometimes forget it is what I do. So I'll just be at a dinner party with, you know, non-medical people and I'll just be talking about death and then I kind of look around and realize that they just think I'm the most morbid person ever. But actually, I just, I don't think of it as something morbid. I think of it as a very natural thing and something that it's better to be prepared for and to discuss and, you know, and there is such a thing as a good death. Um, but I, I completely understand. I think I told you the first time I ever saw a dead body at medical school, um, I was I was panicked because I didn't know how I'd respond. And I didn't even know that person. It was just a person. Um, but I was like, am I going to pass out? Am I going to throw up? Am I like, is this going to be really, I'm going to be that embarrassing medical student that can't handle it. And so I do understand that people have this weird fear because it's something that's generally kept behind closed doors. Um, but then I went in. And I was like, okay, actually, this is okay. <laughs> and then again, the first time I had to confirm a death, I was kind of, it was late at night, the hospital was a bit dark, I was a bit kind of panicked about going in the room, what if they're not actually dead, like, ah. Uh. But then I went and I did it, and I actually realized it was just a very peaceful thing, and the nurses kind of had, they take out all the lines, and they put a nice clean sheet over, and they just look very at peace, like they're asleep. And I was like, oh, okay, this is, so I've slowly kind of realized the time that it's not something to be scared of. It is very natural. Um, and I think that's just, when I talk about it, it's not to be morbid. I'm usually describing, just chatting about my day and, you know, oh, it was really nice because, you know, all the family were there and da, da, da. But if you don't like talking about it, I can see some people just kind of stiffen. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it, it reminds me of, of how it's changed my perspective of death, because although, you know, most people will, or some people might have had family members die or pass away mm -hmm. at this point, there's certainly a lot of people that might not have been exposed to that or experienced that. And in a way, I'd never really looked at death in itself and how we die before all this happened. And as a result of this whole process, I'm no longer afraid of death, which is a complete pivot for me because I've seen it. I've, I've not experienced it, but I've seen it literally in front of me and I can see how peaceful it was at the end and it wasn't chaotic and there wasn't shouting. There wasn't, you know, pain visible, at least visibly the person was not in pain. It was just very gentle and quiet. Yeah. And yep. I wish more people knew that. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting as well because um, different countries don't necessarily kind of promote palliative care as much. Um, so I have had international experiences as well with family members where when I have kind of said, okay, you know, this situation is getting to the point where he's he's not going to get better and the doctor agrees with me. And then I discussed, you know, palliative care drugs sort of said, okay, well, maybe we need to kind of stop active treatment and switch more to comfort. And they were outraged. They were basically trying to suggest I was murdering them. <laughs> so it is also as well, interesting, different cultures approach to these things um, that they will kind of, think that you're trying to accelerate uh, death. And I think that's a really important differentiation as well, that we're not accelerating anything. We're just making people comfortable. 
it, yeah. it's going to happen one way or another. So what we're doing is making sure that they're really comfortable and not in any distress. And that's very different to accelerating things. Yeah. Um, but again, it's, it's about clinicians with good communication skills who make sure that all of this is conveyed. Um, I had a very sad case actually of the gentleman in the pandemic who was, he was about 93. And I went to discuss a DNAR with him and he said, no, I don't want that. My wife signed that 10 years ago and that's why she died. Um, you know, and obviously it wasn't, obviously something happened that she was incredibly unwell. And so they didn't resuscitate her. But again, that lack of communication had led that man to go away for 10 years, thinking that the hospital just let his wife die, that she signed a form and that meant they just let her die, um, which is just really poor communication. And I understand we get busy, we get rushed, we try and have these conversations. We'll say sometimes people nod and they don't necessarily understand or you think you're being clear and you're really not. Um, but again, for him, that was his wife dying. And he thought that that was avoidable because of a form. And I dread to think how much he'd sort of resisted coming to hospital over that time or like fear of going to hospital because he thinks that's just how we treat people. And then for him to have that change his or his desire, his wish as well to, gosh, I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Yeah. So it's just, I think the only way is communication, communication, and just yeah. keep thinking about these things and take away the taboo and just be a bit more open and calm about things. <laughs> and that's what I'm really hoping this will do for some people. If, you know, even if they don't and I'm hoping people will have that conversation a bit more openly. And even if it doesn't, at least it spurs on the, the thinking yeah. and, and the thoughts towards that. And you mentioned earlier something, you said a good death. Hmm. And that really struck me because all things considered, you know, the, the disease that my mom had was horrifying. It was, you know, it wasn't pleasant for her or for us. And you almost have to think of it removed from the condition like you don't oh what am I trying to say sorry give me a second <laughs> that's okay I think as well when it's something personal like it's it's harder to get to formulate those kind of thoughts together because it's kind of mixed in with that emotion isn't it absolutely because we could see this progression of this disease and she died of motor neuron disease and it was so destroying and you're witnessing and there's nothing you can do and then to think of a good death almost feels paradoxical. And so whilst I think we, I hope, you know, we, we, we were able to give her that good death. What does that mean for you when you say a good death? That someone's not in distress, that they're not suffering, that they have what they need, whatever that might be. Um, yeah, so, and giving that person what, making it just a more pleasant experience all round. So for example, if we know somebody's coming to the end, it's nice to move them into a side room to have privacy, to have quiet. Um, so for example, with my grandma, for example, um, we went in there and we kind of turned all the lights down. So it was kind of nice and dim and we just sat quietly and we kind of chatted. Um, she wasn't communicative at that point, but she was kind of sort of responsive so we knew that she could hear us so we were just chatting about um her that we loved her we were reminiscing we were talking about my grandfather and so you know we hope that 
she wasn't scared she wasn't alone she had a syringe driver which meant that she had sorry there's another cat um she had you know um she won't have been feeling distressed as her breathing became a bit more difficult she wouldn't have been in any pain because there was like a good amount of morphine going through so you know it's walking away and saying she was comfortable we were there it was going to happen it is going to happen but it happened in a way that seemed right that was controlled and and a good death <laughs> rather than an un unpleasant one you know traumatic and loud and as you say chaotic and not being there, not having that time. And I wonder, are there any resources out there that people can, you can direct people to that might be helpful? Um, in terms of resources, I'm not sure. I'm just trying to think sort of things I've read, which I thought were really good. Um, one of them is a book called When Breath Becomes Air, which is honestly one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. It is written by a neurosurgeon, but he actually studied literature so he's a beautiful writer in the way that I as a doctor am not and um it's actually it's it's such a beautiful book it's his reflections um when he finds out he has brain cancer and it's not really a, a spoiler because it is quite clear from the beginning what happens but he does actually pass away in the end and it's his reflections on life and what's going on and his wife's response and they just had a young child um and I think it was a really beautiful book, actually. And I know it sounds incredibly depressing and I, I'm not going to lie. I'm not a big crier, but I did cry at the end because um, <laughs> it's really beautiful. But it's just a lovely reflection on kind of who we are, why we do what we do and, and his experiences at the end. First person, which I suppose is, is quite an unusual thing because usually it's our presumptions of how other people are experiencing things. So I'd recommend that book to anyone. Sorry if you can hear the cat going crazy. And I suppose one of the things that I've been sort of, even throughout this conversation talking about is, you know, the family perspective of death, of the, the loved one's perspective of death, but we don't really consider what that does to you as a doctor or the nurses or the medical team in general. How does that impact you as, as, as a human being? So I think, again, I mean, I have been, especially during the pandemic, because people didn't have people. So I did often sit with people at the end, because it's all you can do. Like, I can't prescribe them something extra. I can't magic away this situation, but I can make sure that they're not alone. And for me personally, I think when, when it is sort of you've done everything you can, you you feel quite sort of not happy, but just sort of, okay, this was going to happen. And I made sure it was as pleasant as possible. There are certainly times when things go differently. Um, you know, for example, if someone arrives in A&E and they're already sort of in cardiac arrest and you don't really know how much time they've been having chest compressions for, and it doesn't look very, it's not going to be successful. And you're sort of trying for a long time until you finally realize that sort of you're not getting anywhere. Um, and that can be quite traumatic. And in those times, that's usually when we spend a bit of time, we go away and we debrief with each other and we just talk it through. Um, because I think as individuals, you often 
think to yourself, could I have done anything differently? Did I act fast enough? Did I give them this? Did I miss something? And you can drive yourself a little bit nuts with that when you leave work. So it's really nice to debrief with your team and just say what you think went well, what you think maybe could have gone better and just make sure as a team that you feel that you did everything you could so that then you can go away and kind of be at peace with that. Um, especially as a junior, very junior, you can often be like, I did something wrong. You know, I missed something, but actually you haven't. And sometimes it is just, if they've arrived at the hospital and they, their heart stopped, you know, 40 minutes ago, <laughs> there's very little you can do, unfortunately, unless there's a really obvious cause. Um, and you just have to, I think as you more mature and kind of work in the profession for longer you kind of realize that you you realize there's always chances to learn and you want to make sure you always reflect on it so if you did miss something or you could have done something differently you learn from that but also there are times where you can do everything right and it, you, it won't be successful um but that's part of the job yeah and as a person who's experienced it through their loved one I just want to thank you for the kind of work that you do, but also for coming onto the podcast to talk about this, to be able to share valid, informed based information and dispel some of the myths around death that we sometimes think about in terms of the medical, the medical side of it. Thank you so much for just being here. Thank you for sharing like a very recent experience. Um, you know, when it is your own loved one, it's very different to talking you know about third parties so you know thank you for being so honest and open about it um and hopefully people aren't too put off by the title of this podcast <laughs> i hope not but i think either way it's a conversation that needs to be had yeah because there are you to figure out a way to get dnars known to the general public i don't know how i'm going to do it yet but <laughs> we'll have to get you your own podcast <laughs> I'm going to just continue to talk about death. <laughs> death and my cats. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alessia. Okay, my pleasure. <laughs>